Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? Doing very well, Eric. I'm down in Atlantic City at the Sports Collectible Show, which I know we'll talk about later. And the show's been fun. I actually got to walk the boardwalk last night, which was also fun. So look forward to chatting more about the space uh, a little bit later on the podcast. Very nice. And uh, as we've uh, turned the calendar once again here to August, that means we uh, have actual live competitive football uh, preseason games beginning this week. And the NFL will be a, also a key part of our discussion this week. We have the collectible show that we're going to break down and some further developments in the very rapidly and dramatically transforming world of U.S. college sports. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Frank Sapovitz, head of Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment. Frank is not necessarily the most household name in the business, but all of the events that he has principally put together in terms of Super Bowls and drafts and award shows and winter classics and the like, fans know all of that. So even if they don't know uh, Frank, they absolutely know his work. And so we're going to have a conversation with Frank. So stay tuned for that. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Frank Sapovitz, President and Chief Experience Officer of Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment. The New York-based firm, founded in 2014, has forged a major position conceiving, building, and executing some of the most prominent events across the sports industry, including a litany of all-star games, drafts, special event games, and award ceremonies. Clients of Fast Traffic have included Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Canadian Football League, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame, among many others. Most recently, Sapovitz and Fast Traffic played a key role in dramatically expanding the scope and production value of MLB's draft, which was staged at LA Live as part of all-star game events in Los Angeles, California. Prior to forming Fast Traffic, Sapovitz held senior executive roles with the National Football League, where he overlapped with Chris, and the National Hockey League, helping bring those league's events into far greater levels of size and stature. He is also a published author and podcast host in his own right, focusing particularly on crisis management and sports events. Frank, welcome to the program. Yeah, it's great to be here with you. Thank you. So obviously there gave you a little bit of uh, that gave our listeners a little bit of the career background for you. But I think maybe a good place to start is what the pathway was that you you had these great league jobs and what was sort of the 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 spark to create your own firm? Well, I, I grew up in New York City, so New York is the land of opportunity, right? Everything is very, very close. You can take a bus or subway just about everywhere. And back when I was in school, it was even cheaper a bargain than it is today. I grew up at Radio City Music Hall. I, I started there as an usher when I was still in high school, worked my way through there, became an usher captain and upholsterer's assistant, and uh, ultimately got a management job there when I graduated from college. So I was in theater operations. And while I was there, I started to learn about production and I started to learn about the creative process and some of the things that Radio City Music Hall does really, really well. They decided to get into the into the events business, and that's not just events that were happening inside the theater. They were looking at doing things outside the theater, and the majority of the production that they were doing outside were for sports organizations, one of which was the National Football League, and I was the associate producer of the halftime show for Super Bowl Twenty Two. That was way back, 1988, so long before I was even born. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> But things like the Goodwill Games and Olympic festivals and, and stuff like that. And, and in 1991-92, the National Hockey League decided that it needed somebody who was in the events business to run their events department. They didn't have one, believe it or not, even as late as 1991. So they hired me to come in and start to move forward more of a, of a production sense and a presentation sense for their all-star games and the Stanley Cup and ultimately international games and things like that. So I, I was there for 13 seasons before I caught the same bug that uh, that Chris Russo did. And we 
went to work for the National Football League where I was for a decade. So we'll skip over the, the NHL and NFL because you've already talked about that. The reason I decided to get into other things was because after 23 years working for a couple of sports leagues, I wanted to learn more and I wanted to contribute more to different properties. And I had that opportunity because I was my reputation was reasonably good. I had the bully pulpit of the, of the NFL on my resume and decided to go off and do my own thing. And the very first thing that I was, I was able to do was work with Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where I've been producing the pre-race show for the Indy 500 for the past seven years. So that, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, a little bit of work for the National Rugby League in Australia, they, they were my third client, and uh, a little bit of work for the NFL, even after I had left. Uh, those were my first four clients, and I haven't looked back since. Frank, when one of these leagues or properties come to you and, and engages you, is it mostly because of your experience and expertise? Is it because they want to institute some kind of change that they couldn't do internally? Is it they want an independent kind of assessment or voice? What, what is typically the reason someone wants to bring you in? You know, I wish there was a typical. There isn't. Everybody's different. Every client is different. But what I will say, for the most part, is they want to elevate their level of engagement with fans on an experiential level. And that is often in the form of live events. It isn't always. Sometimes it's a venue that needs to be designed or developed or something that is going to one day host events. Like here in New York City, uh, the South Street Seaport, Howard Hughes Corporation hired me to help them develop the rooftop at Pier 17, which is a concert venue, 3,500 people on the roof of a building three blocks south of the Brooklyn Bridge. Stunning place to watch a show. Stunning. And they needed to understand or needed someone who could understand how to move people through the building, where security should be before they got in there. It wasn't production and creative. It was really much more on the operational level. But all the creative depends on that operational level, right? Being able to execute something really well. And so I was hired to do that. But for the Indy 500, I was brought in just to work with their team to make their events better. So I, I produce it, but the entire staff is Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Baseball, we bring a, a partner production company with us to help execute that because they turned it over. They wanted it to be a production and didn't have really the, the bandwidth to be able to sit on top of this new event that they were doing or this new execution of the way they were doing the draft. So everybody's different. Sometimes they want a big production company, and sometimes they just need help being their own big production company. You mentioned the word experiential there before, and that's obviously such a big buzzword in, in the business now. And as more and more properties and teams embrace that word and try to execute upon that word, how do you sort of see your role and your mission perhaps evolving, growing, morphing? Well, you know, it's funny. We, we used to call ourselves event people, live event people, right? We were, we were going to organize and produce something that would be passively consumed by the fans, whether that's, you know, music or videos or, or something in the run of show that is going to keep people entertained for three hours. Uh, in and around a, a game or it's a, an event unto itself. Now, what people have begun to realize and, and leaks have realized is that the experience is a driveway to driveway thing. It's not something that happens when you first sit in your seat. It's something that, ha that begins perhaps at the front door. A lot of organizations think of it that way, where every moment, every interaction with everybody is part of that experience and even training people on how to be part of that experience and represent the brand has become really, really important. Others recognize that it's a driveway to driveway experience. If you think about going to a football game, for example, it really starts before you woke up, right? I, what do I need for my tailgate? You know, have, did I shop for everything? If I shopped for everything, great. We'll pack everything up and and put it in the car and off we go. But there are so many pain points, right? The, the, the traffic, the cost of parking, the amount of time that's required to get to and from the stadium, all of those things 
all of them are part of the experience as well. And it's part of the decision-making matrix that somebody uses to determine whether they're going to go to a game on any given Sunday or, or a baseball game on a, on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Frank, you just uh, finished working with Major League Baseball, I believe, on, on the recent draft, as Eric alluded to. How would you evaluate the success of that event in, in its kind of new format and how it's attached to All-Star? So what's your view on where that event is? I think Major League Baseball has a real opportunity here. And apparently they, they knew that before I did. You know, the real, the real mission of the draft right now is to introduce new talent to the fan base. It's a little bit tougher with other sports because you don't have the college system with basketball or, or hockey or, or football where everybody who is a, an adherent to that sport is somewhat familiar with the new crop. Here it's high schools and colleges from across the country. And we have an opportunity to introduce the new generation of player who may or may not play in the major leagues you know, the first, the first season out, they may play, you know, double, double A or triple A or whatever, but this is history. And what, what I tried to do and what our team tried to do is put it into the context of witnessing baseball history and showing, for example, draft boards of previous drafts and where great superstars started when they were, when they were selected. So if you're there for pick 31, you may still be seeing a superstar that's going to emerge in a couple of years. So it's really an educational process and it's a real opportunity for baseball in a way that it isn't so much for other sports because people already know who they are. Here you have the opportunity to tell people who they are, show them a little footage, let them, let them listen to the players, the, 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 the players that are selected in their post-selection interview. Baseball's draft moves really, really quick. This year, it's only three minutes between picks, right? When, when I started on the NFL draft, it was 15 minutes between <laughs> picks. Now it's 10, right? But three minutes between picks in the first round and only a minute in the second round. We did the first and second round this year. It moves really, really quickly. And you have the opportunity to tell the story of what is going to happen down the road and, and really get people more familiar with the players. I think that's where its strength is going to be. As the sports industry gets more global and more properties look to stage events on other continents, how are you looking to take advantage of that? Well, we I've taken advantage of it already. I've worked with the National Rugby League in Australia. That was a really, really fun opportunity. They really wanted to be a little bit more like the Super Bowl when their grand final rolled around. And they studied the Super Bowl. Of course, I was associated with the Super Bowl for a decade. And they got in touch. We, I, I went out there for 10 days up ahead of, of the grand final and uh, made recommendations on what they could or should do to make it a much more interesting property for them. Here's where their issue is. Their issue is that their grand final happens in the same stadium in the same city every year. It doesn't matter who's in it. So it can be a neutral site game or it might not be a neutral site game, but it doesn't move. And if you have two teams from Sydney, which is where the stadium is located, the, it takes the city over. People are really excited. If you have a team from Melbourne and Brisbane, it's hard to get people in Sydney excited about it. The model that the NFL has, which is brilliant, is that the Super Bowl is not about the two teams that are playing except at game time. For the entire week leading up, it's a celebration of American football. And if you're a fan of American football, it's a gotta be there. And that's what we had to do with the National Rugby League. We had to make it a celebration of rugby league rather than a celebration of the two teams that were playing. And that way fans could come to central locations with whatever jersey they wanted to wear and celebrate the sport that they love. So we helped them develop a fan festival that, that delivered on that. A lot of leagues overseas look at what North American sports do and try to emulate some of the activation strategies. You know, our sponsorship models are different. It's not just based on the jersey. Overseas, everything is really focused around the jersey, the equipment, or the field. Here, we try to touch fans in different ways, intellectually, emotionally, et cetera, 
And we do it through sponsor engagements and things of that nature. Overseas, people get that. They understand the difference. And it's starting to move in that direction in a lot of ways. And I think that's where the opportunities lie. Frank, you've had a lot of success with this firm. It's, it's about eight years old, I think, at this point. So I don't know if you're looking for change per se, but how do you think about ultimately having this firm be part of something even bigger? Would you ever consider you know, partnering with or selling to a, a bigger event production, whether it's an Endeavor or, or any of the, the, the big entities in the space? How do you think about that in terms of the future of the firm? You know, I really haven't thought about it. If if my phone were to ring and we were were to have a meaningful conversation, it would it would be based on whether or not that firm's objectives and my own objectives are in alignment. I like doing things that make fans happy, excited, enthused, and engaged. That's what makes my day wonderful. And it can be on the collegiate level. It can be and our next events are are on a collegiate level it's for a college out in phoenix or to help spread the gospel of the next crop of major league baseball or something new and different for for mlb we actually did the red carpet show for the all-star game as well a couple days after after the draft i just really really enjoy taking a puzzle and trying to figure it out and and figure out how to do it in a new and different way without losing its main objective, always keeping those objectives in mind. And if there's tradition involved, that's great. We can reimagine how those traditions get portrayed. And the Indy 500 is a perfect example of that. That is an event that is steeped in tradition, but how that tradition is executed now is different from what it was eight years ago. You know, what's the future for uh, fast traffic events and entertainment? I really hope that I keep doing that and keep doing it for more and and different and more exciting endeavors, including, you know, if I had to put a commercial out there, women's sports. I think the the potential for women's sports now is is limitless, and I think it's going to be taking off even more than it has already. The WNBA has been in a, at it for a very very long time, but women's soccer, women's hockey, all of that. I I think that there's enormous potential that I'd, I'd love, like to be part of helping to build. So have I been fielding calls from major agencies? No. And that's okay. I like them anyway. They're nice people. Mm-hmm. And if I were to get a call, we'd, we'd have an entertaining conversation and compare notes on what, what enthuses us and what our objectives might be. And if they match, then there's that possibility, but there's nothing in the offing at the moment. You mentioned women's sports before. Looking broadly at the space, what are some of the properties, events, leagues out there that you think are particularly poised for significant elevation in the scope and prominence of what they do from an event perspective over the next few years? I think women's hockey is the is the area that I am most watching. You've got two organizations, one that has been out there for seven, eight years, which is now the Premier Hockey Federation. And you've got another one that's trying to get off the ground in a, in a year or two. I'm not sure exactly when they're going to uh, get onto the ice. I think that women's hockey is so much different than, than men's hockey, right? It's not about the brawn and the force and boarding, you know, sending people into the boards and things of that nature. It's about skill and it's about, it's about, the expertise on the ice and and just and finesse and all of that and watching the Isabel Cup last year, which I had the the honor of attending down in Tampa. That's the PHF's championship. I just fell in love. I fell in love with the sport. I did. It, it was. It's just such a a different expression of the same great sport. And I think it's ready. I think it's ready for prime time. Frank, Eric uh, mentioned your podcast and your book on crisis management. Uh, Are there a couple of key learnings or key tips that you could give the listeners as they find themselves in the middle of a crisis beyond, you know, call Frank? I'm sure there's a lot of other uh, crisis management folks out there, but what are the two or three or four things that you think are important to do or think about if you find yourself in a crisis? Well, the first thing I would do is not call Frank when you're in a crisis, because I can't help you at that point. (laughs) I'd like to help you before you find yourself in a crisis. You know, it's really about preparation at the end of the day. 
And one of the things that we did that I would recommend for everybody, we talk about it in the book, is doing tabletop exercises to kind of game out the things that can happen to you. There's always, a, you know, event people are really good planners, right? That's what we do. We know where we started. We know where we want to go and we create a path to get there. But you need contingencies along the way. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? And some of that contingency planning helps you in real time when something goes south. I don't know, say something that could never happen, like the lights going out in, in the Superdome for the, you know, at Super Bowl 47 could never happen. But let's say it did. What we were able to do, and the reason I think we were able to respond as effectively as we did was because we did this tabletop exercise where we game day. And I, I did that every year that I was in charge of the Super Bowl, about 10 days before we'd get everybody who was in a decision-making, operational decision-making role in a room and shut the phones off for four hours and close the door. And we hired a facilitator who was familiar with our operations plan, outside an, an outside third party. And he would throw scenarios at us. You know, it's 6.30 in the morning and there's a fire right outside the place where your staff is going to park and now the streets are closed. You know, how are you going to get your staff to the stadium? Things like that. And we would go through four or five or six of these a year. And a lot of times we were able to game them out and then create policies and procedures to avoid those kinds of things. Not all of them were very specific policies, but they were don't know what the problem is going to be, but you can respond to problems in a similar way, different problems in a similar way, so that you're not prepared for absolutely everything, but you're prepared for anything, which is a distinction. And during the entire time that we did this, a power failure was never one of the scenarios, never, but we fell right back into the drill. And we started to knock down the problems, identify them and knock them down, just like we did 10 days before. And it, it made our team better because remember, we're going to a different stadium every year. So it's a new team. Right. Some people are the same. 50 percent of them are different. And we, we became a decision making machine and an evaluation machine and then a response machine. And that's how we were able to respond more quickly. Um, and in a reportedly calm way, I don't remember being calm. I remember being sick to my stomach, but, but 60 minutes said we were calm. So I'll take that. And being able to game out those kinds of scenarios in advance so that you have a generalized response mechanism that your team is ready to activate. I think that's huge. There's so much discussion around youth in the sports business right now. And you've obviously had this great breadth of being at so many different kinds of events, what does the sports industry need to do a better job of in order to attract younger consumers? You know, there's that translation between playing and being a fan. And they're not the same thing. This supposition that they are. If that was true, Major League Soccer would be the number one sport in the country right now because so many kids play soccer. Connecting up fandom and playing is something that hasn't yet been decoded. It, it's something that is assumed will happen, but it's not necessarily so. I would say the same thing with baseball. You know, Little League uses team names, right, of, of actual teams. I remember my kids, you know, played on the Giants, they played on the Astros, they played on the Pirates, they played on, you know, every team imaginable over the course of their Little League career. But that didn't mean that they were going to follow the Pirates or the Giants <laughs> when they became when they became uh, a little bit older, or even frankly, while they were playing the game, being able to match that and and being able to exploit that, I think, is something that that if if we can find a way to do, can unlock a lot of opportunity. Frank, as you think ahead now to the next several months, are there a few? or one or two kind of key events or initiatives you're particularly excited about that you want to share that I'm working on. No. I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about those yet, but, but I will talk about some real out of the box thinking that I think is emblematic of, of what we have to do now. 
some of it is born out of COVID and social separation and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, live gatherings are still a basic human need, whether you're gathering for Thanksgiving around the dinner table or you're gathering at City Field to root for the best team in New York, to, to be the next best team in New York, uh, which just happened this week. So I think that that one of those out of the box thinkings that that I really admire and I'd like to see it uh, myself, I hope I get a chance to do that, is the Paris Olympics and how they are visioning their opening ceremony. So they're not doing it in a stadium. They're doing it on the set. And the, the audience is on either bank of the river. And a lot of the production actually comes at you floating down the river uh, on boats. So the, the parade of athletes is going to be done on boats and some members of the public will be able to see it. You know, it won't be in the best viewing locations, obviously that's going to be where people are spending money, but, you know, making the Olympics a little bit more open and then trying to execute in a way that, that is so different because, you know, think about it. Every, Every few years, we're watching the same stadium show every single year, right? It's the parade of the athletes, and it's the same parade of the athletes with the same oiled-up guy that you know everybody's waiting for. It follows a protocol. What I really admire about what their approach is over there is that they are following the protocol, but they're executing it in an entirely imaginative way. And I think that that I'm going to be watching. I, I think that's going to be very cool. Well, a lot happening in and around uh, fast traffic uh, events and entertainment and what Frank Sapovitz is doing. We're going to continue to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Frank for spending this time with us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chris. Great to see you both again. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Frank Sapovitz again from Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment for spending that time with us. And shifting our attention now to the news of the week here, uh, as uh, mentioned at the top here, we're uh, again fully into the NFL preseason now. we got the Hall of Fame game coming up this week here, and uh, we had a pretty big announcement uh, the closeout July 1 that was expected, but uh, promises to be quite impactful nonetheless here that uh, we've had the formal debut of NFL Plus. This is the league's uh, direct-to-consumer streaming service that puts together live game audio, We've got uh, mobile uh, rights to uh, local and primetime games. We've got archival content for an enhanced fee. There are some coaches' films, including the uh, much-revered All-22 view. A couple of different tiers to this. There's a $4.99 base price, and then if – Consumers want to go up to the premium level. That's nine bucks a month or nine ninety nine a month. And really, what this does is it uh, puts for the league puts together a real uh, important stake in the ground that this is uh, they really want to lean into that. Obviously, that digital future and take some rights in part that were once held by Verizon in, in terms of those uh, mobile based live games and moves it essentially behind this paywall here and then has it fully in-house by the league here. So again, something that uh, we had known was coming. Roger Goodell, Brian Rolap, other key league executives have been talking about this coming for some time, but now it's here. Yeah, it, w- it was not a huge surprise, Eric. And I think, you know, in terms of repackaging some of the existing products, the live audio, the out-of-market, the games in preseason, you know, those things had been done before, but kind of putting them all under one bundle and the NFL Plus brand, I think was good. It'll drive some new revenues. It'll drive some engagement. What I really do wonder, though, is the one product that I think has been untapped, even since my days at the NFL, is that enormous NFL Films library, which is largely inaccessible to fans other than when they can see, you know, production done on NFL Network or the various other linear networks. But I think ultimately the ability for the fans to tap into that incredible archive at NFL Films could make this service uh, extraordinarily interesting for uh, you know a, a lot of subscribers. Yeah, it's interesting because I know they've been working for a long time in terms of a lot of the meta tagging and such to help with the search and discovery of that content. But this is one of those rare instances where 
you could make a case that baseball is ahead of football in, in a certain business element where, um, you know, baseball has gone through a similar process in partnership with Google and their film library, the MLB film room, it's, you know, it's, it's just an absolute treasure trove. And they've continued to build and expand upon that. And the granularity that you can search for specific plays within that element is really quite remarkable. And I think what you're speaking to is ultimately trying to get to a point where if you highlight a certain date, a certain player, a certain team, even a certain type of play, you're going to get a quick uh, set of really relevant results in the case of football. And we're just perhaps not quite there yet. Well, you know, from an internal perspective, I believe they're there. At least they were, you know, there when I was at the league, which is if you're an NFL Films employee and you want to go and look for a specific play, a specific angle, that all exists. Making that available to consumers is I think the step that still needs to happen in a way that is, you know, kind of fully searchable. And I think also the other aspect of that kind of content is, do you start promoting it on a team basis? In other words, if I'm a Denver Broncos fan, let me know that I can see, you know, highlights of the 1978 Super Bowl the first time they were there. And then the other, I mean, can I get all my my Broncos highlights and historical in, in, in one place. And so that will be interesting to see if there's a, a little bit of a team-based approach to it down the line as well. Now, of course, this really is, um, you know, still sort of part one of what we expect to be a multi-chapter media story for the league here that we're expecting a, a big deal around the out-of-market package NFL Sunday ticket, and then potentially an equity deal for the NFL media assets which may or may not include even this new NFL plus here. And so there's uh, this really just feels like sort of the beginning of a sort of broader redefinition of this portion of their rights and of their content. And I would guess, Eric, that NFL plus will play a role in whatever those other decisions are, whether ultimately a fan can you know, buy Sunday ticket and then uh, get a, a NFL Plus subscription for a reduced cost or if the, if and when the NFL uh, partners with somebody for its uh, owned properties on an equity basis, you know, now you've got this tangible product NFL Plus that's there that probably enhances the value that exists in addition to NFL Network, in addition to NFL.com. So I wouldn't be surprised to see NFL Plus be bundled in some way with those other yeah. initiatives. And because the league is basically doing this themselves from at least a, a business standpoint, uh, they've got the flexibility to do what they want with NFL Plus going forward. They haven't signed a 10-year rights deal with anybody around that. Yeah. And again, this is another one of those things that this product can sort of really, to me, it appears to have a lot of adaptability to morph and change. Because, for example, if somebody came back in like Verizon did before with those mobile rights for the live primetime and uh, live local and primetime games, you would think theoretically that could be just excised back out of this and sort of the the content on offer beginning in 2023 or what have you could just be adapted. It can be adapted in that way, which is maybe removing some things that could be bundled elsewhere. I think over time, the other strategic opportunity, not necessarily in the short run because the rights are tied up, but in the next sort of media cycle, you could see certain live games be put exclusively on the service to drive signups if this becomes a more important product longer term for the league. So that flexibility, I think, is important. Yeah. And, and again, as they've been marching for some years and even going back to your time with the league, this is also just in yet another step of the NFL in all places at all times that if you want to go deep 24-7 literally on NFL content, there is a way to do so, multiple ways to do so. Yeah. When I was at the NFL, Eric, now it's 20 years ago when I started there, I launched the first sort of online subscription service, which we called NFL Field Pass in the day, which was just the audio feeds from all of the radio broadcasts locally. And we were charging $4.95 a month for that. You know, fast forward 20 years, it's $4.95 a month and you get all of these other products and games and archival footage. So it's a pretty attractive bundle, I think, for, for hardcore NFL fans. Well, much more to come on this front. And as, uh, as we uh, detailed, there's uh, several other pieces yet to uh, come in this realm that I'm sure we'll be discussing in future weeks. But moving from the world of pro football to college football, we're in the season of 
preseason media conferences or pre uh, media conferences by a number of the big college uh, sports entities here in the United States. And in the midst of this era of broad transformation of the space, we've had leaders coming out uh, just in recent days, Kevin Warren from the Big Ten, Mike Oresco from uh, the American Athletic Conference, others sort of giving their states of the union in terms of how they're seeing this space as it goes through this redefinition. And what's been striking to me is uh, the messages have sort of changed a little bit from person to person, but there appears to be a real desire among a, a lot of these leaders to really kind of lead in and drive the change as opposed to have the change happen to them. And as we've discussed in prior weeks, one of the broad concerns I've had through this whole thing is that there's nobody really overseeing this from any sort of omnibus level and, and trying to sort of uh, settle out some of the provincialism that inevitably is going to come through all of this. But having said all of that, uh, seeing a Kevin Warren looking to be, in his own words, bold, aggressive, and really lean in, Mike Oresco saying that he, he would like to actually see college football in total at the Division One level separate out structurally and fundamentally from the rest of Division One, And again, it, this was a sort of tenor writ large that we haven't necessarily seen over the last 6, 12, 18 months here, where a lot of this stuff was in a more reactive sense. Now it seems like there's been a, a bit of a tonal shift to something into a more of an active sense and trying to drive that change. Well, it seems to me, Eric, that the people who are driving the change or driving the initiatives are coming out on top. I mean, Kevin Warren, yeah. you know, he basically drove change and, and George Klykoff had the change driven upon him. Right. So I think in a, in a world where there isn't, you know, complete national governance, whether it be the NIL issue, whether it be realignment, whether it be any of these other business related elements, it seems like the folks that are being aggressive are being rewarded. Now, maybe at some point down the line, there's going to be blowback. There's going to be other unintended consequences. But if you're kind of sitting on your hands, you might be missing the game. And again, there's certainly going to be winners and losers on, on this. And, you know, it's it's easy for Kevin Warren to sort of say that he wants to or easier for Kevin Warren to say he wants to drive change when he's, you know, basically on the two yard line of what looks to be a billion dollar a year plus deal for his media rights, unprecedented totals in, in U.S. college sports. But again, having said that, if, you know, nature abhors a vacuum here and if if the NCAA is not going to fill that role, at least on on some level, there is to me some encouraging sense that there, there's somebody going to, you know, some people looking to be willing to try to step up and take a more active role here. No, I think I think that is right. I think what is interesting to me, Eric, of, of the two you know, folks this week, Warren and Oresco, who were out very publicly in press conferences and, and media avails, kind of the story, at least being covered out of uh, Warren's uh, remarks was, wow, this guy is really on a roll. He started off was a little rocky, but two years later, he's he's doing great. This conference is doing great. Uh, there's not a lot of talk about Warren's concerns about NIL and realignment and rivalries and all that. And then on the other hand, Oresco, the kind of the headline coming out of that discussion was, you know, we got to be careful because we may lose some rivalries here. We've got to be careful about NIL. We've got to be careful about all those things. So I do think there probably is some concern among some in the space that some of the bigger players are getting bigger and stronger, and that may leave some other people behind, and maybe that's not good for the whole, and who's going to come in here and, and try to moderate all that? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, and again, that gets back to the uh, NCAA president search that's happening right now, and we expect some further news on that before the year is out, and you know, quite possibly one of the most important executive searches happening in the entire industry right now. And and that person's going to come in with a really big job and a really big set of expectations. And, and unclear what level of power that person's right. going to have. It's going to be as much about uh, persuasiveness and trying to align people politically as it is that you, you know, you have the authority to do this. So, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of important things. Obviously, the Big Ten media rights now, the Pac-12 is yep. apparently you know, looking at their media rights. We've got potentially the extension or the expansion of college football playoffs, which will be, I'm sure, an ongoing discussion. We've got NIL. We've got all of these things brewing. And it really does require some extraordinary leadership for someone to step in there and, and try to bring it all together. 
Now, in the midst of all of this uh, sort of tenor of trying to drive change instead of having change thrust upon them, what will still be very interesting is, you know, you're obviously coming from the world of the NFL and that very famous story of these owners sort of coming together to pool their television rights and give up some perhaps short-term local gain in in service of the greater collective good here and whether something along those lines, whether it be an NIL, whether it be some governance approach, um, you know, probably not from a media perspective per se, but even the CFP, some of these other issues, whether we're going to see some sort of mentality, whether where those individual gains are perhaps sacrificed in the name of that greater collective long-term good. I think there's a possibility of something like that happening, but I I think, Eric, the most likely way that happens is really more akin to the big five commissioners coming together and and laying out a framework that is then adopted more thoroughly throughout the industry. I don't think the NCAA president is going to be able to do that. I think there's a lot of differing interest among the parties that are in in the mix. I think different than the NFL situation where you had, you know, at the time, I don't know how many owners there were, 24 owners or whatever the case was, those individuals could make the decisions really on their own. Whereas in the college space, you have pretty complicated political situation. I mean, we even have in California, UCLA, and there's some squabbling with the state about whether they can actually get into the Big Ten. So I think it's tougher, but I do think the big five commissioners are going to have to be leaders here and hopefully they can you know, get through their realignments and poaching of each other to actually have a, a kind of cohesive approach. Well, much more to come on that front here, but uh, shifting from the world of college sports, the one of sports collectibles. We've talked about this at great length, though, over the weeks here on the podcast. And this is a segment that just continues to grow and grow and grow. And Chris, you're on the ground there in Atlantic City. And I've seen some of the headlines here where, uh, you know, I guess potentially looking at a, a $20 million Mickey Mantle card uh, <laughs> uh, by the end of the summer here, which would uh, more than triple the uh, record for uh prior card sale, but writ large, what are you seeing down there? Well, I think the first thing is there's a tremendous amount of attendance and energy, literally football fields of dealers and producers and companies in the industry. So, you know, recession doesn't seem to, you know, have any merit here in this industry, at least for the moment. I would say the other big kind of story coming out of this week is everybody's you know, looking at fanatics, what's fanatics uh, going to do? They obviously made a huge play in the space over the last year, uh, buying buying the rights, buying to- tops. And so I think a lot of folks are wondering, well, how far do their ambitions lie? Are they going to buy a grading company? Are they going to get into the auction space in a deeper way? So I think there's a lot of, you know, looking at them, looking at Steve Cohen, who bought PSA collectors, uh, some of these new big players in the space, I think, are getting a lot of attention and we'll see how how deep they, their roots are going to go in the industry. Yeah. And that's a real interesting thing because, uh, you know, for all the work that Cohen and collectors have done and Cohen's, you know, the richest owner of Major League Baseball, you know, owner of the Mets here. And he and it, to your point, he's rolled up a bunch of services, you know, Golden and uh, great PSA, and he's got a, a bunch of things there. But even somebody literally as rich as Cohen can't compete with the resources that Fanatics has. Uh, uh, you know, Cohen's personal net worth is you know roughly half of the latest valuation of Fanatics. And so, if uh, Ruben and Fanatics really want to do something, you would think perceivable, conceivably, they should win any win out any bidding war. They certainly could, Eric. But this is such a big, fragmented industry that at some level, I think even Fanatics is going to have to pick its spots. I mean, this is, according to some research, a, you know, a $26 billion a year uh, industry, the sports collectibles business. While you have three or four big players like Fanatics and Steve Cohen and Beckett and obviously eBay's in the space, yep. there are literally hundreds and hundreds of mom and pop businesses, dealers, and all kinds of other pieces of the ecosystem, event companies. And so not not everybody can do everything. And so I, I do think to some degree, Fanatics is going to have to start at least with, you know, go. they've got tops and then they've got more trading card initiatives, more focused on entertainment. They have the capacity to be really broad, but at the same time, they want to have the confidence of the collectibles industry and of the collector and not be seen as, uh, you know, kind of interloping and, and just sort of, uh, you know, pushing the, their, their weight around here. So we'll see, you know, see where they go, but certainly a topic of discussion down here. 
Yeah, and sort of running parallel to this, I think there's been a sort of in the last couple of years, a sort of broad awakening and redefinition of what player licensing rights look like. And I've been having a number of conversations about this subject, particularly with the MLB Players Association. And they're part of uh, the one team collective and and one team and, and Redbird are now in the midst of sort of a redefinition of what that particular structure looks like. But uh, sort of regardless of where that nets out, there's, I think, a bigger story there in terms of players unions writ large looking to see hey you know this can't this doesn't have to be just sort of the same old things we've been doing year after year we can be we can be innovative we can push for far greater value we can get into new areas and there's a whole new thought process happening on that side and that's where fanatics particularly has a lot of uh, advantages here because they've got relationships with all these entities already they do eric and i I, you're right to point that out there's always a lot of attention paid to the league rights but in categories like you know collectibles memorabilia autographs you know player rights are critically important and player participation is important what what is again what what's interesting to me about that is the the players associations have traditionally had a lot of clout in this area and and have done deals and you're right there's more innovative deals that can be done but what we see happening especially as it gets more toward the nft space is you also have individual players breaking out and doing stuff on their own like gronkowski did uh, that nft drop and there's sort of the barriers are starting to break down in terms of what can be done, you know, more of a, and more of a disaggregated way. And so everybody is looking out for themselves, but yet, uh, you know, trying to maximize the whole. Now, I'm curious as to what you're seeing down there relative to women's sports uh, product, because that's another obviously growth area. And we continue to talk about this across just about every segment of the industry in terms of a real growth driver. You know, what I have seen, I've not honestly seen a lot of focus on women's collectibles on the floor in terms of items being sold or, or focused on. But in, in a number of the meetings that I've had with industry, uh, you know, trade companies and, and, and various parts of the ecosystem, I think there's a real interest in getting more involved in the women's space and a view that there's a big growth opportunity there. So I think we'll see more of that coming forth. I don't think in the current, if you walked around all the tables and all the dealers, there's not a lot of focus on women's sports there, but a lot of the business executives in the space are looking to do more in that area. So maybe something that looks pretty different a year down the line, two years down the line. Absolutely. And uh, you know what I, you know, there's a, there's a, again, another, you know, part of this, Eric, there's in addition to the, the card shows and all of the business parts of it, there's a huge autograph pavilion where there's all kinds of stars there that are signing autographs for fans. And again, for the most part, those are those are male, male athletes. But I think over time, you could see more female athletes be part of those those opportunities. And, and I do think it'll grow. Well, as we come to uh, the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a bit of a look ahead in the space and see what else is catching our eye looking forward. And Chris, I will start with you. Well, Eric, as we talked about earlier, you know, the NFL season is upon us. There's going to be a a lot of look ahead in terms of what happens with the Sunday ticket rights, what happens with the NFL-owned media media rights, and I'll be eager to see that. But I think there's a couple of other things to keep our eye on with the NFL coming up. You know, are there any changes in the way they approach sponsorship? We've seen some of the other leagues start making these patches available, start making some of these more uh, immersive opportunities. Does the NFL ultimately jump into that game? I'd say two other areas to watch. Betting continues to be an interesting area, somewhat, you know, cautiously exploited by the league. But, you know, do they get deeper in that with more in-game opportunities and promotion? And then finally, in the NFT space, the NFL has done a couple of deals with with NFT companies, including Dapper, but I, I do think you might see more, maybe less around NFT, but more around blockchain and how blockchain impacts other parts of the business. So the broader swath of things to look for in the NFL really goes beyond just the media deals that we expect to happen. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of opportunity there at, at- at play here that domestic uh, media rights have been settled out for the next decade plus fans are back in the building they're not obviously having to spend as much time worrying about covid protocols here and this just literally opens up a lot of bandwidth in terms of time and resources and attention to think about things in a much more opportunistic way 
Yeah. And as we've talked about several times, the other big initiative, which, you know, we've again, we've talked about quite a bit is the international uh, opportunity for yep. them and how much traction do they get in a number of these markets where they've just started to to allow teams to kind of have uh, territories overseas. So that'll be something to watch as well. Well, speaking of international, what I'm keeping my eye on are the the La Liga Giants, FC Barcelona. They're currently in the midst of an American summer tour here, and those uh, summer tours by the European Giants are happening again for the first time in three years uh, uh, due to COVID here, and it's been a real shot in the arm for Barcelona here, and I had a chance to spend uh, some time uh, this week with their president, Joan Laporta, and you know, it's a real sort of turnaround story for them right now. They've had a couple of really rough years financially and reporting losses and got over their skis essentially uh, uh, financially. And we talked about their Sixth Street deal a few weeks back. And there's been a lot of other uh, momentum behind them. Big deal with Spotify for their jersey and, and training center. Naming rights covers both the men's and women's team. The women's team drawing incredible uh, attendance and a lot of opportunity ahead for them. You know, there's just a, a lot of uh, uh, wind at the back of Barcelona right now. And, uh, you know, they're talking about they're already uh, back in the uh, transfer market in a big way. And Laporta is even talking about trying to bring Messi back for the end of his career there. So it's it's been a real interesting thing. And, uh, you know, in part through these these kind of summer tours that are happening once again here, this is a club that obviously is uh, not only uh, popular across Europe and Asia, but has a pretty strong following here in the States as well. Yeah, I mean, they're clearly a classic brand and and a, and a great franchise. But, you know, you mentioned the Sixth Street injection of capital. Yep. I think more broadly across Europe, that injection of private equity capital into those businesses has been a real boost that yep. a lot of these clubs and a lot of these leagues needed because they really did get hit, I think, harder than some of the U.S. leagues around COVID and around attendance and really were flat. You know, I wouldn't say flat on their back, but they were really facing some cash struggles. And so I think that injection of capital has been really helpful. Now, whether long term those deals end up being good or bad, you know, we'll have to see. But that cash now is is really being put to work. That's exactly what he said. He, it's been it's been a critical driver for this turnaround. Yeah. And so we'll see. I think that's going to give more private equity uh, kind of incentive to do things over there. Sure. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week. 